0: Um, We're going to go ahead and move into our teaching time, and we're going to read from John 19. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles, and we're going to have Stephanie come on up and read from scripture. Good morning. This is the reading of God's word from John 19. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in an Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning, church family. How are you? You guys are good. Welcome. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday. In the year of the church, so to speak, Palm Sunday is celebrated the week before Easter. It's a commemoration of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and being greeted by the crowds and they waved palm branches and and he he rode in humble on a donkey and uh, we studied that passage like four months ago. Uh, we're just ahead of the curve here at Sound City Bible Church. And so, in our series in the Gospel of John, we're going to kind of just keep trucking along. We're really, really close to being done. Uh, I am. Kind of astounded how quickly time flies, how quickly several years can go by studying in depth uh, this book. We love, if you're new, uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron, I'm one of the pastors, welcome. If, if, if you're new, you should know we really love uh, kind of our bread and butter here is just to take books of the Bible and go line by line, verse by verse through them because we believe the Bible's claim that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable It's useful for us, and so uh, as we go through books of the Bible, it makes us confront maybe certain ideas, topics, themes that either wouldn't occur to me or I'd be too scared to bring up, and so uh, we love letting God do his work through his word. Uh, What I want to do today before we do anything else is I want to invite you to join with me in a a moment of prayer uh, because we really need God if we're going to really hear what it is that he inspired to be written for us. You agree? We need God's help in this. So let's pray together uh, as we begin our time in the teaching. God, we, we ask that you would meet with us now. <clears throat> God, for each and every one of us uh, who is here, who is one of your children, who have been saved by your grace, adopted into the family of God, now I ask and I pray that you would reveal yourself to us just in new ways. You'd show us the depths of your love. You'd show us the greatness of your power and glory, and we want you to captivate our attention and our focus here today. And God, if there's anyone here today uh, who's not a follower of you, who's not a believer in you, and they're here because someone invited them or they're here because they've got questions or or uh, maybe just they're, they're longing for something, God, I pray that you would show yourself to them in, a, in that special way, God, of bringing faith into their hearts. For myself, God, I pray you'd guard my lips and my tongue and would only speak that which is in line with the truth of your word and give each of us uh, soft hearts, give each of us hearts that are willing to, uh, to do some introspection today and to look and see where we fear others instead of truly fearing you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And Everyone said, amen. Well, in this passage, you may have noticed, as, as Stephanie was doing our scripture reading, you may have noticed the word fear and afraid used a handful of times, and those, that theme kind of resonating throughout this passage. And so I wonder just, uh, this is kind of a dangerous thing to do here this early on a Sunday morning and, and this big of a crowd, but what are some of the things that people fear? And you can feel free to you know, say them out loud, and you can just say, I'm, I'm just telling you for a friend, even if it's your own fear, right? So, so what are some things that, that people, people fear? I heard snakes. Who said snakes? All right, we're gonna, so we got one for snakes. Anybody, Any show of hands, anybody agree with snakes? Okay, yeah, thank <laughs> you, Pastor Doug. Okay. Was it you who said it? Okay, you're seconding that. What, what else? What do people fear? Pastors with, my, get out of here, Jordan. <laughs> heights, I'm terrified of heights. No Wi-Fi, wow. And you're not even a millennial, Renee. <laughs> barely, just barely, yeah, right. <clears throat> I'm afraid of, uh, you know, people being mad at me when I accidentally, you know, say how old they are in front of a crowd of people. So what else? What are are the things that people fear? Claustrophobia? I didn't hear it. Cross, stop it. All right, this is, never mind. You all have lost your privileges, okay? I, I said it was a dangerous thing to do. You know, you can you can read statistics and different surveys and different studies, and and the word fear. I mean, it, it can be simple things, you know, like a, a snake or a spider, things that are more uh, kind of instinctual. It can be much much deeper things. You know, as a pastor, I sometimes have conversations where people are afraid that that they've lost their salvation or that God no longer loves them. I mean, these grand grand things. I would I would argue. That the number one fear that we all share in common and that we interact with on a day-to-day basis is this idea of the fear of a man. And I think there's a few reasons of that, but, but one of the primary reasons is we were created in the image and likeness of God. And because we were created in the image and likeness of God, we were created for relationship. We are created to be uh, interdependent upon one another, that we we truly do need other people in our lives. Uh, it's part of how God has created us as human beings. We ultimately need him, but we also do need one another. But in the brokenness and the fallenness of the world and of our own hearts and minds, we, we crave the approval and the love and the support of other people in ways that go beyond God's intended intention for us in creation and that we spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about what other people think of us. Do other people like us? I mean, just, you know, Hannah came up and did the, uh, the welcome here a minute ago. Did Hannah do a great job by the way? Yeah. I, we had to kind of strong arm, arm her into it. She's our, our newest staff member, and she may have gone like the longest amount of time on staff without coming up and like doing the welcome. And so we're like, no, come on, Hannah, you're gonna do a great job. I texted the rest of the staff while she was wrapping up. I'm like, you all are fired. She did the best job of anybody. She's great. But I know for you, Hannah, not, not to put you on the spot, but I completely will, uh, you know, there's a feeling of like, I'm gonna go up in front of all these people. What are they gonna think of me? How am I gonna do, right? Is that, is that a fair assessment? Uh, somebody, you know, maybe a handful of you here are new. I see some some new faces, your first time walking into a church, uh, this church, and you're, you're looking around like, Are the people going to be nice? Will I be welcomed? Will I be accepted? Some of you, you know, you, you've got a class that you're doing, or some of you start a new job and you walk in and you're, you're thinking thoughts something like, Will I be accepted? And while there's a part of that that's really good and normal and human and how God created us, in our fallenness, it gets us into all sorts of trouble. The famous verse from Proverbs 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It gets us stuck. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And by the way, fear of man is a Christian... Bible sort of a term. I think in our culture and our society, even those who, who don't subscribe to the teachings of the scripture, they still have other terms for a similar sort of phenomenon. If you're a teenager, what are the teenagers in the room? What do they call it like at your school when, when you're, you're, you're wanting your friends to like you and accept you and so you might kind of go along with the crowd? What do they call that? Peer pressure, right? If you are an adult— uh, and you care more than you ought to about the opinions of other people, what is the counseling psychological sort of term that we use in our culture? Codependency. You guys heard that term? Codependency. I need you. I need your approval. I need what you think about me. The Bible calls it fear of man. There's a biblical counselor, a guy named Ed Welch, really, uh, just really helpful uh, teacher and counselor. Here's what he says. He has a book called when people are big and God is small. I highly, highly recommend this book to you. But from the introduction, he said this, he said, regarding other people, our problem is that we need them for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. And the task God sets forth for sets uh, for us is to need them less and to love them more. We need to need them less and to love them more. And this has to do with the fear of the Lord. Uh, That will be a subject that comes up as we're talking here. But I want to keep the the bullseye on this idea of fear of man. How do we root it out? The big idea today is simply this. Fear of man kills. It's a trap. Fear of the Lord brings life. So let's dive into this passage here. And let's look for some of these themes as as we're reading through. Okay? Uh, You might remember if you were here... Uh, last couple of weeks, or if you're not, let me catch you up. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He has been arrested. He has been uh, flogged, not the full scourging yet that takes place before the crucifixion, but he has been roughed up. He has been before the Jewish religious leaders, and now they've taken him to Pilate, and, and Jesus and Pilate had this big conversation last week about who's the real king over all the other kings, and and uh, the, 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 the answer, by the way, is Jesus. And so, uh, We're picking it up in verse six and there's this this interaction with Jesus and the chief priests and and Pilate. Verse six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, when they saw Jesus flogged, dressed in a purple robe, a crown of thorns, a mocking crown of thorns placed upon his head, Pilate thought that might satisfy them. This will be enough. But no, the chief priests and the officers saw him and they started to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They're chanting, And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. We talked about this last week, but Pilate is contemptible for being someone who who has a conviction. This three different times Pilate says he's not guilty of any crime and yet he is still heading down the path of capitulation, just giving in to what the mob wants. I find no guilt in him. The Jews, the the Jewish religious leaders, answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The, the, The religious leaders want Pilate to know, hey, by the way, this isn't just like blind rage or some sort of jealousy. We have laws, we have Jewish laws that come into play here. For example, places like in Leviticus 24 verse 16, where it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Jesus was not put to death simply because he agitated the the political structures of the day. Make no mistake. Jesus was crucified and put to death because he claimed to be God. Sometimes people, skeptics, will say, well, where in the Bible does Jesus say, I am God? He doesn't. But if you know how to look through all of the imagery and language and signs, it's like constant. And even right here, these religious leaders are saying, we're putting him to death for the sin of blasphemy, making himself out to be the son of God. Now, verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid and he entered his headquarters again. Remember last week, the, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go inside. They're standing outside because they didn't want to be defiled. And uh, he's running in and out and back and forth and talking to them. So he has to enter his headquarters again. And he says to Jesus, where are you from? Like Pilate has officially had his cage rattled. He's even more afraid, rushes into Jesus. Okay, what, like, who really are you? But Jesus gave him no answer. So let's let's pause for just a moment. Why is Pilate afraid? There's a few things I think that are factored into this. Different commentators or scholars will kind of point out different ones. Some of you might be thinking of, if you read in the gospel of Matthew, you might remember that Pilate's wife had a dream right in the middle of all this. She woke up. Her husband's already off to work early in the morning, doing his stuff, you know, deciding, ruling, all that stuff. And she sent a messenger and she said, you guys remember this? She she said, hey, have nothing to do with that man for I have suffered terribly in a dream because of him. So while John doesn't mention this dream in his gospel account, many I think rightly point out that there's probably something there in Pilate, like some fear, some agitation. My wife had a dream about this guy? Crazy. How, that doesn't just happen. We, we, just, we just met him today. This all just started happening. I've already been gone. I'm off to work. I'm, I'm governing. And she's having a dream? Okay. I think there's possibly that phrase, the son of God. I think that might have triggered some fear of threats from the Caesar. This, uh, this is Tiberius Caesar who is ruling now. Caesar Augustus was the Caesar when Jesus was born, but it's now Tiberius Caesar. And over these few decades, uh, the, the phrase son of God had become pretty much equivalent to the Roman Caesars. You can go find coins. You can find different things where, you know, Tiberius Caesar, the son of God, It all started with Julius Caesar, who claimed a divine sort of right, but it's kind of carried on. And so if you have somebody going around claiming that they are the son of God, well, that might get you in trouble with the empire. And Pilate maybe is taking this a little bit more seriously because, oh, he's he's claiming to be the son of God. He's not just claiming to be the Jewish king. He's claiming to actually be divine. Maybe that rattled Caesar. I I think, I think, I can't say this on 100% authority, but I think that Pilate had his cage rattled the most because he actually started to wonder if maybe Jesus could actually be divine. (laughs) You know, the, the Roman world went through a, you could call it a secularization process. This happened with ancient Greece. It happened with Rome. We kind of see it happening with our American empire right now where people kind of move from a place of faith and belief to a, a, a more of a naturalistic sort of explanation. So at this time in the Roman Empire, there were some that, you know, they believed in all the gods, you know, the Roman gods, you know, Mars and Jupiter, and all the things our planets are named after, and, you know, the divine Caesars. But, but m- much of that had kind of fallen out of popularity among those who were ruling. But, but sometimes, you know, if you're in a certain culture, even, even somebody like Pilate, you know, he's a harsh dictator, a, a, a tough tough-as-nails sort of guy, but even he probably has a little bit of superstition. Wait a minute. Where did did he, where did you come from? Give me the full story. You're you're saying you're a son of God? R.C.H. Lenski, a great old-school Lutheran commentator, says this, actual fear gripped Pilate. The indefinite feeling that he had all along now received definite support. Turning his eyes searched the face and the figure at his side and the thought shot through his mind. What if this word of the Jews were true? Like a flash, it shot through Pilate's mind that this word might indeed be the key to everything. I'll let you guys argue about it in your community groups this week. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, You're not even going to talk? You won't even speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? This is Pilate flexing on him. You're not going to talk to me? Do you not understand? I have like your fate in the palm of my hand. Jesus answered. No, now Jesus answers. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. (laughs) I love, isn't just, isn't Jesus awesome? (laughs) He's not answering, silent. And then Pilate starts trying to flex and Jesus just answers exactly, insightfully, just what needs to be said. There's a lot that could be extracted from this. There are at least two or three other sermons just in these words. I won't do them right now, but I want to make two points. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you would have no authority if it were not given to you, granted to you from above. And so so the first significant theological point, I want you just to remember this. All authority belongs to God. All authority belongs to God. Any and all authority that anyone on planet earth exercises is ultimately on loan from God above. That does not mean that God approves of what all authority figures do. In fact, much of the Bible, in particular the Old Testament prophets, have a lot to say about people who use their authority and their leadership for unjust purposes, for selfish purposes. God has some very strong things to say. But just remember, all authority belongs to God. We talk about this with our money sometimes, right? All of our money belongs to God. When we, when we give of our tithes and our offerings, we are not giving our money to God. We are giving God's money back to him because it's all his. And when you spend your money, when you, when you take care of your family, or you provide for the needs of the poor, or when you, uh, you know, wh- whatever you do, that is God's money. And we want you to understand, God wants you to understand that every dollar and cent that goes in and out of your bank account ultimately belongs to him. And that provides a framework for how you spend your money. And the same is true about authority. If you have a position of authority, if you are a boss at a company, if you are a, a parent, if you're a teacher in a classroom, if you're a leader, a deacon, an elder in the church, all of that authority ultimately belongs to God, and that should set a framework for how we use it. Again, I could. there's a whole sermon there. I'll leave that alone for another time, maybe when Pastor Doug is preaching, but you got me, brother? Okay. But I just want you to think about that. Think about the words that Jesus said. The other thing I want you to think about, again, a whole additional sermon, but not all sin is the same. Did you notice what Jesus said? He said, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is something that I think is, um, it happens in the church where well-meaning people have, have gotten this kind of cliche that has worked its way throughout, particularly the Western American church, where they say, you know, all sin is equal in the sight of God. Anybody heard that? You know, all sin is equal. All sin is the same. No. Okay, moving on. No. <laughs> the end. The, I could show you, uh, you know, ten a dozen verses that indicate there are differences in sin. Now, When I say well-meaning, I think what people are trying to say is every single one of us is a sinner in need of way more grace from God than we could even possibly imagine. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? We all need a lot of grace. But no, not all sin is the same. Not all sin is the same. All sin, all sin brings destruction and harm into God's world that he created. All sin brings destruction and harm into your life and the lives of the people around you. But I'm sorry, there is a difference between shoplifting and sexual assault in terms of the effects and the damage that are caused in the life of the person who commits it and the life of the person who is on the receiving end of it. This does not mean we go around ranking our sin. This does not mean that you gather with your community group next week. Okay, let's assign points for each sin that everyone did. And we're going to, you know, set up a leaderboard and like, Ooh, you really got to pray a lot. This, like, we're not doing that. Okay. We're not doing that. But it does mean that there is a time where you look at somebody in the eye and say, This is serious. You must Repent. You are destroying your life. You are harming your spouse and your children. There are times where we must have an impassioned plea. Jesus says that the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Who's the one that handed Jesus over to Pilate? People can kind of take it and say this is about Judas and his betrayal. I actually think this is about Caiaphas, the high priest. Because if you trace the storyline, they take Jesus to Annas, the father-in-law. They take him to Caiaphas next. And then Caiaphas is the one that hands him over to Pilate. Caiaphas is a religious leader. He has the word of God. He has been entrusted a place of incredible responsibility in the lives of the people. He ought to recognize the long-awaited Messiah. And instead, he's advocating for his death. The Bible says that we who teach and exercise authority will be judged more strictly. Keep that in mind. Again, there's a whole sermon there. I I wrote a blog post. It's up on the website. You can find it if you want to dig in. If you want to argue with me, uh, my email address right now is jamin at soundcitybiblechurch.com. Tag you in. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Like you get the sense, like Pilate is trying every legal maneuvering he possibly can to get Jesus just off the hook. But the Jews cried out. Here's the low blow. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. (sighs) These Jewish religious leaders are so committed to seeing Jesus executed that now they're starting to play the Roman politics game. Pitting Pilate against Caesar, playing on his fears. So, 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 so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabatha. This is like official. Okay, fine. Let's go, let's go to court. You want to do this? Let's go to court. I'm trying to spare us all some trouble here. Doesn't seem like a really big deal, but if you're going you're gonna to push on me this way, let's go do it. Verse 14. Now, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover when the lambs are to be slain. There's a, a lot of conversation about how the chronology works out between John and between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a very fascinating subject if you want to dig into it. Uh, seriously, send me some Send me an email and I'll send you some information on all that. I just want you to understand, like, this is a big deal. It's a a big, big deal. And John is pointing these things out because he wants us to see that Jesus is the lamb who is to be slain. He said to the Jews, behold your king. He's being a tough guy. He keeps putting it back on them. Even while he's scared out of his wits, he's, he's still putting it back on them. Behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Are you guys seeing this? This is hostile. You know, move over, you know, U.S. House of Representatives. You want to see some hostile politics here. Man, the chief priest answered, listen to this. Like, just listen to this. We have no king but Caesar, the promised Messiah, all the way back in the Garden, when when God said, I, "I will, I will send a Redeemer. He will crush the head of the serpent." All the way back when God said to Abraham, "I'm going to use one of your descendants to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth." All the way back. When God promised King David that one of his descendants would rule and reign over Israel forever, all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, and all of these men of God speaking as they're carried along by the Spirit a Messiah is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. Here he stands before them, and the Jewish leader said, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. <clears throat> So here we've got Pilate, and we've got these religious leaders, and both are behaving horribly. And what seems to me to be happening underneath all of this is this idea of the fear of man. Pilate is afraid of the Jewish religious leaders. He's ultimately afraid of Caesar getting in trouble with him. We saw some notes about that last week, about he kind of was in a, in a tenuous sort of position, Pilate was. I think these Jewish religious leaders are fearing man as well. They're caring about the opinion of Caesar more than the opinion of God. They're capitulating, they're, they're giving in, they're not actually uh, doing what is right. They're, they're obsessed with, with Jesus, they're obsessed with getting him off of their, and like just out of their problem. They, they, everyone is like looking at everything and everybody else except for God himself. This idea of who you fear has to do with your sense of identity, like who you are so when we, when we fear the Lord, a lot could be said about the subject of the fear of the Lord. And I've, I've taught on it before. And yes, there should be a sense of like, right, awe, and reverence. God is powerful. Have you ever stood next to like, even a small waterfall, that thing could knock you over. People in like, shampoo commercials, washing their hair in a waterfall. Like, no, that's bad decisions, right? God is, you know, Niagara Falls, times a bajillion. This last week, this photo of, you know, the first black hole, just you know, could could suck up a galaxy and, and God is above and bigger than all of that. When we rightly fear God, when we rightly fear the Lord, what it really means is we let him define who we are. What God says about us is the thing that's the most true. He gets to say what our identity is. He gets to say what reality is. Conversely, when we fear man, we are allowing people to define us. We allow people to define our identity. They say who we are. They tell us what we're like. And they define our reality. When our eyes are on people instead of on God. I'll give you two others that I... I, um, I I can't help but notice. And I'll call this first one something like tough guy confidence, okay? So instead of fearing the Lord and letting him define our reality, and instead of fearing man necessarily, like um, uh, transparently, sometimes guys and gals, I'm calling it tough guy. This is uh, no discrimination of gender here. It's something like, I don't care what anybody says about me. You guys know what I'm talking about? I don't care what people think. Let them talk. Let them, I mean, this is like every hip-hop song you've ever heard, right? Like, you know, I, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what, what they say about me. I mean, it's like, this, it's like this detachment. It's like a faux detachment. I don't think it's real. I call it faux. It's fake because, number one, it's literally impossible to not care what people think about us. We are hardwired by God for relationship and community. And... It's just not true because there is a limit. At some point, you do care what people think about you. If you've ever had a job, you will care what your boss thinks about you. If you've ever been driving too fast and see a police car, you do care what they and their radar gun say about you, right? There's a limit to it. You can go around thumping your chest all you want, say, I don't care what people think, I don't care what people think, you just do. You just do. Then... There's even one more layer of this, which I'm going to call tough girl confidence. And again, this is no, uh, no gender discrimination here, girls, guys, but, but it is particularly noticeable in the realm of social media aimed at women. And it has—my wife sent me a bunch of these memes, and so if you look through my phone, there's a lot of like really— just don't look through my memes that I've saved on my phone— but it's, it's this idea of I will define who I am. No one else can define you, only you can define you. It matters not what, ladies, anybody know what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter what anybody else says about you, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, you get to define who you are. You've got to look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that you're beautiful. You got to, you got to, and in the name of empowerment for women, you're actually left less empowered because you don't have the strength to really define yourself in that way. Thank you, thank you, sister. And as a dad of, of, of a lot of girls, I don't even remember how many right now, just a lot. <laughs> like, this is something I see. And, and you know, my, my oldest ones are in middle school and all this pressure of like, who's gonna define you? Well, I'm not gonna let anyone else define you. Only you can define you. <laughs> First, I'm sorry. I, can you guys tell I'm feeling better than I was last week? <laughs> First Corinthians four, the apostle Paul says this. I love this. He says, with me, He's defending his apostleship and people are kind of getting on his case. What gives you the right? He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. I mean, translated, I don't care what you think about me. That's what Paul is saying. But then he says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not the one, you're not the one, and I'm not the one who gets to define who I am. Who gets to say how well I'm doing? Who gets to uh, uh, define my identity and my reality? He says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. I might be a huge mess. I don't know. It's the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who defines me. It's the Lord who evaluates me. You don't get to evaluate me. I don't get to evaluate me. The Lord gets to evaluate me. Friends, the fear of man is a snare, and even if it's not other people that you're fearing, you're letting them define you. If it's yourself, it's still a trap. And the words of Proverbs are so true. They're painful traps. It's a snare. It's a snare in our, in our minds, in our head. Because when we give place to fear of men, we start to compromise our values and our principles and we start to make justifications and excuses for it. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You're in a social setting and people are going to do something. It's morally questionable. I mean, even, even something is seemingly, you know, youthful, but we've got, we've got teenagers, children in the room here. Your, your friends are going to watch some movie or something. You know that your parents don't allow you to watch and you're just, you're in that moment. You're like, I know I'm not supposed to watch this and you start to make justifications. I can remember the first time I did it. I was seven years old and my friends were going to watch a movie and I knew I wasn't allowed to watch it because it was rated PG 13. And I said to myself, I'm going to watch this movie. And I made a justification and compromise. You guys want to know what movie it was? Thank you. It was Batman, yes. <laughs> Michael Keaton, just, uh, I had to see what it was like. Batman is one of my greatest stumbling blocks. You start to justify, you start to compromise, you start to give You, you know your, your values, your principles, you start to act like pilot. I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm just gonna kinda mm, go along with the crowd. And then in your, in your head, it moves into your heart because you know it's wrong and you know you should not have done it and you shouldn't have, have given place to that and in your heart. Now all of a sudden you have fear and you have anxiety and you have isolation. Isolation, I mean... <sighs> When, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, it says they hid themselves. And you see that isolating effect in, in every sin and every compromise. But what's so particularly insidious about this sin, this, this, this heart level issue, this fear of man, is we're letting people define our reality. We're looking to them for approval, but in the end, we still end up feeling more alone. It's like when we're hungry and we, we know we should eat something healthy, we know we should eat something good, but we reach for that junk food and, and for like the briefest of moments it feels good, but in the end it actually leaves us feeling worse. It's like that. We want to be loved, we want to be accepted, we want to be valued and we give in to the fear of man and then it becomes this painful trap in our hearts and it leads to fear and anxiety. Am, am I okay? Because you never really know with people, right? You never really know. Even with yourself, You might be, you might be like real, like, you know, you know, at a girl one moment and then the next minute just like beating up on yourself. or You might have all the friends in the world, you know, approving of you one minute and the next minute, what am I on the outside? What am I, you know, rejected? People are fickle. And then it leads us ultimately with our hands into sinful actions like we see here with Pilate. So how do we, how do we fight about this? How do we, how do we, Seek to fear God more. Well, let me take us back to to verse 9. He, Pilate, entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Jesus gave no answer. And then, you know, Pilate says, You're going to speak to me. Do you not know I have authority? And Jesus goes, Listen, buddy, you have no authority. You know who has all authority? God. What does that Jesus not answering him remind you of? What does that make you think of? There's a prophecy given five, seven hundred years before Jesus was born, depending on your dating of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, it talks about our Savior prophesies this centuries before Jesus was ever born. He, our Savior, was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. How does Jesus do this? How is it, yes, Jesus is the son of God, but we also know that he is fully human, fully man. The, the, how does Jesus stand before the person who has the earthly authority to have him executed and put to death and yet remain silent in the face of false accusations and all sorts of lies? How is Jesus able to do that? Because he lets his father define all reality. Jesus says, no, i you have no authority if it were not given to you from heaven. Jesus, even in the face of Pilate, has his eyes focused on his father and what his father says about him. Think about Jesus. Jesus did not fear man. Jesus only feared his father. Charles Spurgeon says this, he only had to have lifted his eye to heaven Or to have felt a wrathful wish and legions of angels would have chased out the ribald soldiers. One flash of a seraph's wing and Herod would have been eaten by worms and Pilate would have died the death he well deserved as an unjust judge. The hill of the cross might have become a volcano's mouth to swallow up the whole multitude who stood there jesting and jeering at him, but no, nothing of the kind. There was no display of power or rather... There was so great a display of power over himself that he did not use his might against his bitterest foes. He restrained omnipotence itself with a strength which can never be measured for his mighty love availed even to restrain divine wrath. Here Jesus not only shows us an example to follow, but actually accomplishes something where we have failed to rightly fear God. Jesus perfectly feared God so that we might have redemption and forgiveness. Did you know that when you trust in Jesus, all that is true about him becomes true about you? It becomes true in an instant and then it continues to grow and become true about you over a lifetime. The gospel, when we think about the gospel, the gospel helps us to think straight so that we don't compromise or make justifications. The gospel calms our hearts, giving us assurance instead of anxiety and relationship instead of isolation. And the gospel stays our hands and reminds us that when we give in to those sinful actions, it's that which nailed Jesus to the cross. He's died in our place for our sins, giving us new life, giving us new hope. What can we possibly have to fear? So, can we trust Jesus? Can we can we can we let him define our reality? Can we learn how to walk in the fear of the Lord and not in fear of man? Yeah, we can. Does it mean it's easy? No, I mean, this is so core to who we are. But when we keep Jesus as the focus, when we let him define our reality, we start to see a path forward. So let me me give you a few thoughts in closing here as application. And and these are straight from Ed Welch, looking through his book. Again, if, if this is something that is a particular struggle for you, I really recommend this book. When people are big and God is small, let me just give you a few thoughts from him that will help us as we try to walk this out. Number one, we need to really develop a a big God understanding, or as he says, we need to really grow in the fear of the Lord. Much of what masquerades as Christianity in the United States of America is a big you sort of message. You're so awesome. You're so amazing. You know, uh, there's a song, I can't, I'm not even going to, I'm not, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I was, I came across a song recently where it talked about the whole cross and everything and, and that all that Jesus thought about was us the whole time. And it's like, I, I get it. Like there's a lot of love from Jesus for us, but I'm pretty sure he was focused on the father and his glory and obedience to the plan that was set before the foundations of the world. Yes, it has implications for us, but you're not the center of the story. I love you. The Bible is for us, not about us. We need to do things to cultivate a big God picture. And the bigger that God gets, paradoxically, well, how much greater is that? That that does lift us up. But we can't put the the target, we can't put the bullseye of the target on us. It's a big God understanding. The second thing Ed Welch says, you need to learn how to not just fear God, you need to learn how to delight in God. Like enjoying relationship with him. Again, this is a a whole additional sermon, but, but we know that like, God doesn't just want our begrudging obedience. Okay, God, I will look to what you say and not what they say. But like when we actually do that, there is joy immeasurable. Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. The the, the spirit of joy that is present in the heart of God will become ours. We need to learn how to delight in God and to enjoy God and to walk in fellowship with him. Because then we get to experience the goodness of letting him define our identity and reality. Number three, Ed Welch says, you know, every, every so often, pretty often, we need to examine our needs. Let me put that in quote. Take a look at the things that you're worried about, that, you're, that you think you need, because often those needs are what drive us to act a certain way towards other people. I need acceptance. I need love. I need safety. You have all of those things in Christ Jesus, why are you seeking to squeeze out of flawed human beings what you already have in the perfect savior? Examine your needs. Examine those things that drive you. And then lastly, he says, you got to learn how to love people. And he actually starts with, learn how to love your enemies. Because they're not going to give you anything in return. <laughs> learn how to love your enemies. You, you, can, you can love your, your, your Christian brother and sister in Christ. That's great. He, he closes with that. That's the, hopefully the easier one. Learn how to love your enemies. Learn how to serve your neighbors, those who don't necessarily give you anything in return. Just learn how to serve. Some of you are trying to kind of fill that, that need for identity and relationship just by asking everyone to serve you. Have you tried actually pouring into and serving others? Is it Jesus himself that said it's more blessed to give than to receive? Might you find a, a, a truer reality and a deeper sense of identity in actually living out that servant heart that, that is who Jesus is and that we're created in his image and likeness? Maybe you're missing out on some real peace and some real joy because you're not loving people. You're not serving them. You're not giving to them. You're seeking to take from them. There's a lot more that could be said about this, but I'll leave it at that for today. Friends, let Jesus define your reality. Let Jesus define your identity. And as we go now into a time of celebrating the Lord's table and, and singing together, this will be a great opportunity for us to bring these fears before Jesus in real time and to let him meet those fears with his grace. God, we come before you in prayer now. We come before you and ask for your forgiveness for those times where we've allowed human beings to define our reality, even ourselves, not even other people, but ourselves. Lord God, I ask and I pray that you would forgive us of that. And I ask and I pray right now that we would have a picture of how big you are, how great you are, how powerful you are. And that when we get caught up in that, All these other fears and concerns start to melt into the background. Jesus, thank you that you you did perfectly what we've all failed to do. Thank you, Jesus, that you feared God and that we might share in your righteousness because of your death on the cross. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Pastor Jamie, will you lead us in communion?
2: Thank you, Pastor Aaron. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Pray with me. Father, so thankful for you, so thankful for what you have done for us, so thankful that you care for us, Father. As we sit here, as we right before we partake in the Lord's Supper, Father, please convict each one of us. Please convict us. When when have we cared more about others what others think instead of what you, the Lord of the universe, thinks, Father? When have we done things? When have our actions, our deeds, our, our heart, where have those derived from from worrying about what other people think of us And not worrying and caring about what you, the Lord of the universe, thinks of us, Father. Please help us. Help convict us of that sin, Father. And at the same time, Father, raise us up and help us celebrate the grace that we get to receive from you right now, Father. Because that sin is forgiven, Father. You have forgiven us of that, Father. And that is worth rejoicing and celebrating for, Father. Your grace, Father. So as we, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, Father, we just, we're thankful for your body that was broken, your blood that was shed for us and for our sins, Father. Thank you. We now will partake in the Lord's Supper, and after that, we can stand and sing and celebrate.